0: Welcome to Beg to Differ, the Bulwark's weekly roundtable discussion featuring civil conversation across the political spectrum from center left to center right. I'm Mona Charon, syndicated columnist and policy editor at Bulwark. I'm joined by our regulars, Bill Galston of the Brookings Institution and the Wall Street Journal, Linda Chavez of the Niskanen Center, and Damon Linker of The Week. We are delighted this week to welcome a special guest, Bill Kristol, who is a founder of The Bulwark and one of America's leading public intellectuals. So welcome one and all. Delighted to be with you again after a one-week hiatus. Um, we appreciated hearing from all of those listeners who said they missed us. We missed you too. <laughs> all right, to begin, let's start with um, getting through the winter. Uh it is, uh, at this moment, the figure is 273,000 Americans have died of coronavirus. Uh, there were yesterday, uh, 2,798 alone on Wednesday of this week. So, you know, we've had lots of warnings. Now, in addition to that, the, um, the relief that was passed in March is running out. So, um, Bill Kristol, what do you make of the, basically, let's call it what it is, the climb down by Democrats uh, willing to accept far less uh, for a, a package than they had been talking about before. They had been using the figure of $2 trillion. Now they're talking about, I think it's 900 million, $908 billion, sorry, $908 billion.
1: Yeah, you're so out of touch to be talking about millions, right? I'm sorry. Yeah. Yes, I
0: don't know what came over me.
1: It used to be real money. Yes. <laughs> no, was said that once? Yes. In the olden days. Yeah. Um, look, I, I think it's an interesting, I mean, leaving aside which party they both kind of uh, were excessively stubborn and didn't feel much pressure, I guess, to really come to a deal before the election. And uh, if they're feeling pressure now, that's good. I think whatever deal is made is frankly good because it can always be supplanted and supplemented by what happens after uh, Joe Biden becomes president. And for me, it's a little bit of a test of whether we can, let me put it this way, we've been, uh, people, all of us have been debating for a month at least, or almost a month since Biden won. Are we just in for four years of brutal trench warfare? Ron Brown seemed to describe the election results as making the trenches just wider and deeper than ever. And that would seem to be the safer bet based on recent history. Or conceivably, could you have sort of a moment where, Somehow, there's enough disgust at the hyperpolarization and partisanship and gridlock and everything that you get at least in some areas some uh, you know some, some some people working together, maybe with leadership. That's the easiest way, but maybe with uh, you know non leaders coming, you know, gangs of eight and so forth in the House and the Senate. And we saw a little bit of that on on the pandemic relief package. I, I haven't followed it closely enough in the last few hours. I'm not sure we know what's going to happen. But I I took that as a hopeful sign that the Biden years might not just be a replay of the last decade or two.
0: Um, Linda, there's a caucus in the House, a bipartisan caucus called the Problem Solvers Caucus. Now, Think about that for a second. I mean, if they're the problem solvers, what are all the rest of them doing there?
2: <laughs> That's right. <laughs> we thought that was why we sent them was to uh, uh to solve problems.
0: But they uh, were they were instrumental in uh in bringing forward this latest um compromise.
2: Yes, plan. they were. Yeah, they were and you know, like Bill, I I'm actually hopeful um that we're going to see some movement. I mean, you've already had Mitch McConnell, you know, warming to this idea. Um, they did get, you know, something that was very important to Republicans, which was a kind of limited, um, liability protection for employers, which frankly I'm sympathetic to. I was Uh,
0: just going to ask you, I bet you are sympathetic to that. Can you just, right. So, so you, you're on the board of a very big company. Can you just explain to listeners why you think that's important?
2: Well, because a company can do absolutely everything right um, and still have and still be sued. I mean, there are plaintiffs' lawyers out there in various states. California is probably the worst in the country, uh, where you have very aggressive lawyers who will sue companies, and they generally go after companies that they think have the deepest pockets. And the company whose board I serve on is in the facility services uh, area. It's a jan- large janitorial company. And so you could see um, that, you know, we have done everything we can to protect our workers, uh, and yet um, somebody gets sick or their family members get sick, and, uh, you know, there's no way you can really prove how you got uh, covid um, I guess maybe you could do some sophisticated DNA testing but we don't see that usually done so you know then they sue the employer because they think that we'll get uh, a big settlement and right they have big
0: deep pockets
2: deep pockets right deep pockets and so so I do think it's important on the other hand um, I also understand that not all employers uh, act uh, correctly I mean mm-hmm. we've seen particularly in the poultry processing, Industry, something where I used to be on the board of a big uh, poultry processor. Thankfully, I'm not anymore uh, because some of them are behaving very badly. Um, they are, you know, there were there was a uh, plant in South Dakota where managers were taking uh, putting together a pool on how many uh, COVID cases they were going to have. There have been people who've died in that plant. Uh, there was some indication that speaking to Spanish-speaking uh, employees that the interpreters were not in fact giving the correct uh, advice to those employees about protections and they were being told that there were were no active cases when in fact there were so you don't want to protect bad employers Well
0: well is is McConnell by digging in his heels on this liability protection is he uh, you know providing unconscionable uh, protection to come bad actor companies?
2: No I th- I think that if you can show, evidence that a, um, an employer actively undermined, um, and, and, and presented false information, you'd still have, um, you know, you'd still have, uh, the right of employers to be able to press their case. Um, it, you know, it, it, it's a tough, it's a tough call. Uh, I don't want to see bad actors protected, but neither do I want to see th- the vast majority of employers who are not bad actors, um, Being ruined, uh, because of, of lawsuits. And even when you win a lawsuit, uh, it can cost tens of millions of dollars to the company, uh, in, you know, legal fees, et cetera. So, uh, I, you know, I, would like to see some protection.
0: Mm -hmm, Okay. Um, Bill, you're, I think always one for, for compromise, finding space in the middle. Um, do you um do you think that the uh proposed uh bill is big enough? It, there, it would give three hundred dollars a week for the unemployed. By the way, their unemployment uh, checks will run out at the end of the year, so this would provide three hundred dollars a week. The, the last bill in March provided six hundred. So, what what do
3: you think? Uh, <clears throat> I think the the proposal that, that surfaced on Tuesday was the best that we're going to be able to do.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: Uh, and you know, is it enough? Compared to what? Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. And this is this bill is intended as a short-term emergency relief measure to build a bridge from the pre pre-vaccine world to a world in which the distribution of the vaccine is increasingly widespread, uh, at present there is no such bridge. Every single provision of the CARES Act will expire on December 31st, and many have already expired. Uh, people, you know, people, have exhausted their unemployment insurance, and many more will. Uh, the Paycheck Protection uh, uh, program, has kept hundreds of thousands of small businesses in business that otherwise you know, would have gone belly up and simply disappeared, leaving their employees in, in the lurch. Uh, renters would have been evicted, will be evicted unless something is done. Uh, and more and more people are going to have a hard time paying their mortgages, et cetera, uh, and all we need is a bridge to you know, a world in which the vaccine enables us to get back to more or less normal life. Uh, I think the the practical, economic, and social as well as moral logic for acting in this way is overwhelming. And the only question is uh, only question is what and how much. I should add that. Describing this as a democratic climb down is at best a piece of the truth. This is uh, the product of a multi-year effort to create functioning bipartisanship in the House and Senate. The problem solvers were created in the first instance by a group I helped found, No Labels, about 10 years, you know, which was founded about 10 years ago. Uh, And, you know, it has now become the largest and most influential bipartisan caucus in the House of Representatives. And many of the nine senators who stepped forward alongside the problem solvers on Tuesday uh, are members of an unnamed group uh, that No Labels has taken the lead in creating over the past six to nine months. So this didn't come out of nowhere and it represents an effort not only to build from the center out but also from the bottom up this was this was done not only without leadership but against leadership and the fact that uh, the democratic leadership fell in line subsequently and Mitch McConnell even made approving noises about this uh, a couple of hours ago, calling it a move in the right direction, uh, is a testimony to the fact uh, that rank and file who want to actually solve problems are not necessarily as powerless as they thought they were if they get together. And I think this is a promising sign for that reason. Too much power has flowed to leadership in both the House and the Senate, it has exacerbated gridlock, uh, and there may be a practical alternative to it that doesn't involve changing rules in controversial ways.
0: Well that that all sounds that all sounds hopeful. Uh, the, the reason I described it, by the way, as a democratic climb down is that I was referring to the fact that um, throughout most of the last few months, the Democratic position—this might have been Nancy Pelosi—was that they wanted a two trillion. Dollar package. And the Republican Senate position was that they wanted $550 billion. So arriving at a figure of $908 billion, if that's really the figure, does strike me that the Democrats um, gave more uh, or, or, or sacrificed more, if you will. Um, but um, but anyway, let me move on to, uh, to Damon. Um, Damon, one of the things that we learned this week is that a big chunk of the money that was Allocated in the paycheck protection program that was meant for small businesses actually went to large businesses. Um, this is always a problem with government. It doesn't have to do with the Trump administration alone or any given administration. It is kind of the way things tend to happen, don't you think that you know big guys know how to manipulate the system better than small guys?
4: Well, sure. I mean, it's a big, very complicated country. And when you're dealing with a program that's doling out a couple trillion dollars in aid, uh, there's a lot of incentive to to grab a piece. Um, so in the end, uh, it is probably inevitable that you're going to have some of that. We don't exactly know how much yet. Uh, figuring that out would probably require a massive audit when this is all over and I assume someone will undertake such a task. Um, my own sense of it is that this was such a national emergency that I, I hope we don't get too bogged down and uh, trying to um, kind of follow up on wrongdoing. Um, I do think obviously if there was something truly criminal going on, we need to look into that and punish people. But uh, by the same token, uh this the money was enormous and that actually I think is something that we have to keep in mind in, in talking about the current negotiations over a bridge package um you know even in the the darkest days of the Trump administration this was this was the largest, economic aid package I think we've ever seen passed relatively quickly in just a few weeks. And it really has helped to do exactly what it was designed to do, which is, as Bill mentioned, to keep businesses afloat until this all ended so we didn't end up with massive business uh bankruptcies, which then contributed to the depress to a kind of depression driven by an absolute command, uh collapse in demand in the economy, that people simply could not afford to buy anything, which led to a downward spiral. So I think, uh, I think it, we've gotten through this well enough. We saw over the summer when, when the COVID numbers went down throughout a lot of the country that the economy really was struggling to come back remarkably fast. That gives us hope that when the vaccine is distributed widely, that the economy will bounce back again very strongly. A lot of money is sitting on the sidelines and people's savings accounts. Uh, and as people are going to be eager to spend, but not if people over the next intervening two or three months uh, end up uh, facing that kind of collapse that we were originally worried about that last spring. So um, I am, like everyone else, it seems uh, mildly hopeful that we're actually going to pass something in the next week or so, uh, certainly before the end of the year, and that this is going to be a very good thing.
0: Bill, did you want to follow up?
3: Yeah. Uh, I just wanted to say, Mona, that uh, although I certainly agree that the Paycheck Protection Program, uh, regardless of its flaws, was positive for the country, positive for small businesses and positive positive for workers, uh, the regulations that, that implemented it could have been drawn up to prevent some of the excesses that we've been reading about in the past 24 hours. For example, why did a number of very prosperous law firms, including the one headed by President Trump's personal lawyer, get $10 million of forgivable loans from the Paycheck Protection Program? I do not believe that they were in any serious <laughs> danger of going under the way so many restaurants and gyms and other small businesses have. And uh, I just think that the program could have been implemented in a way to prevent uh, these excesses, which I really think are quite smelly.
0: Hmm. Good word. All right. Um, Let's hope that uh, we are seeing uh, the the birth of some, some benevolent bipartisanship. I wouldn't, bet too much money on it but at least so far this is this is a good thing. All right, let us turn now to consideration of the cabinet picks by the president elect, uh you know, the it, it's funny that we barely talked about Biden, you know, he 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 won the election for soundly and uh, yet, you know, he he is um he's not the front of mind because the crazy takes up so much of our attention. And we'll get to that in a minute, but let's talk now about the cabinet choices thus far. Um, Bill Kristol. So some of these, uh, well, some of these are just like a, a fantasy of what a middle of the road person would have wanted. Right. I mean, Janet Yellen at treasury. And what do you, what do you think?
1: Yeah, no, I'm I'm pleased, and I think a lot of moderates are – Biden ran as a moderate throughout, and everyone kept waiting for him to – not everyone, but a lot of people, certainly conservatives and Republicans, were expecting him, claiming to expect that he would be caving to the left momentarily, and the forces were so strong, and uh, that's where the momentum in the party was. And he never did really much during the campaign, quite the contrary, I'd say and now it turns out guess what he just doesn't want to and he doesn't write do for the country he'll of course make some appointments to you know to the, the each part of the party can feel good about that's what any president does but no on the big appointments here in national security and economic policy they've been quite centrist. they've been a lot of people who were in office you know before and uh it's one interesting question for me especially in foreign policy is you know, have they been a little bit mugged by reality? I mean, they came in with President Obama in 2009, understandably had really high hopes of how he could change everything after Bush and Iraq. I think mm-hmm. there's a little more now kind of sober view of the world and of what can and can't be done and of the immediate task, which from my point of view will make them a little more uh, centrist, I guess you'd say, in in foreign policy. But I just on your first point for a second, it's so interesting. I mean, I've been on so many, several other podcasts and discussions, panel discussions, yeah, everyone it's like biden's the last thing everyone talks about we first we have to talk about trump and the craziness then we talk about can the republican party be saved or can cons- conservatism be saved or the future of conservatism, right. especially on a conservative oriented you know uh, outlet and then in fact gets around to like remembering that maybe we should say a word about the incoming president of the united states it kind of matters how biden does i mean a it matters for the country obviously but b it matters politically i mean if biden is a reasonably successful president our politics look very different, I think, by 2022 or 2023 than if he's uh, some kind of failure, either because he failed because he was foolish or just failed because of bad luck, which can, of course, happen. Uh, the world is the world. But so I, I think Biden is a very important figure for the next uh, moments of American politics, probably a transitional figure, but a transition to a better future or a transition to total collapse. I mean, it's really a, a, a lot depends on how he does.
0: This is so true. Oh, and, Linda,
1: yeah.
0: and Linda, you know, it part of this, I do think is, is a little bit that the press, you know, is having trouble sort of averting its gaze from the, the, the the i won't use a bad word but the show of um uh, of trump and turning toward biden i mean look the, the the most news that he got this week wasn't for his cabinet appointments it was for breaking a, a bone in his foot playing with his dog
2: right <laughs> no you know it, it's absolutely true and i will use a bad word they they're having trouble averting their gaze from the crazy Because the crazy is entertaining. And, you know, if you are a cable news watcher, as I unfortunately keep it on in the background a lot of the day when I'm doing other things and, you know, you've sort of become addicted to getting up in the morning, checking your iPhone to see what crazy thing has happened overnight. I mean, I had sort of hoped that as of the Saturday after the election, we could turn away from that and that we could go back to to having a normal life. You know, it's been interesting. One of the things that I have found myself doing, and I probably disappoint you and others on the program, is turning to Fox News Channel because (laughs) they cover more uh, news. They have news beyond what's going on, you know, in politics. And no, as long as you stay away from the prime time programs, as long as you huh. watch during the day, you watch Brett Bear at six o'clock. I mean, yeah, they're, you know, I. They're still not great, but at least I find out what's going on in other parts of the country, what's going on in the world. Um, Linda,
0: that's what the BBC is for. (laughs) Oh,
2: okay, maybe that's okay. That's what I'll do. I'll start watching the BBC. But you know, I I mean, I do think that um, Bill is right. I mean, I think that Biden is going to be a transitional figure, but you know, pray God that it is a transition to normality, to going back to having, you know, a a much more reasoned, uh, policy discussion on issues. I'm happy to fight with the, with the Biden folks over policy. There are going to be lots of things they do that I'm going to be unhappy with. But I want to get away from attacking people, you know, all of this weaving of conspiracy theories. And, you know, I look at Neera Tandon, for example, who everybody is, not everybody, but at least Senator Cotton and others are saying, oh, no, she can't be, um, she can't be nominated because of her tweets. What planet have they been living on? Uh, Uh, And maybe I don't think of her as, as um, a radical because I am not a regular consumer of Twitter, as you know. Um, But she is always, I've, you know, participated in a program with her on occasion. And I think she's, you know, she's not going to, I'm not going to agree with her on everything, but you know, she's not some crazy Uh, left-wing socialist. And in fact, some of the left wing in the party don't seem to like her because they think she's too moderate.
0: Right. Well, um, Damon, they also think Ron Klain, we're talking about some of the people on the left wing of the party. They're not thrilled with Ron Klain. He's sort of seen as a centrist and Anthony Blinken at state. um, They're not crazy about avril i don't know if you pronounce it avril Avril haynes as the new director of national intelligence first woman to be in that post by the way um but uh, because she participated in the drone program um in the obama administration um so what do you make of those criticisms and what do you um what do you think about the critique that you know he apparently is getting a lot of you know Buttonholing over the fact that he hasn't named any African Americans to major positions yet.
4: Well, on the uh, on the first point, I think it is it, you know one of the issues that they're dealing with, even aside from ideology. Oh, excuse me,
0: except for Linda Thomas Greenfield, I apologize as UN ambassador. Oh, okay, okay, sorry. Go ahead.
4: <laughs> I, I wasn't going to say much in response to that part of the question anyway because I'm, I'm okay. not. I'm not big on. Uh, Kind of, I don't know, I, I'll, I'll insult someone by describing it as bean counting, but uh, I don't really think in those kinds of identity politics categories for hires. Uh, so I, I'll, I'll skip that part of the question anyway. Um, I also haven't been keeping track. But um, on the other issue, as I was saying, apart from even ideology, you're dealing with the, the situation that Biden does want to go back to a kind of normal where, you know, politics is about doing things, policy, trying to come up with the best path forward for the country, you know, old fashioned concepts like the common good, things like that. And, you know, you just you can disagree about what the common good is and and how you reach it. But, um, that, that desire to run politics that way out of a kind of public spiritedness means that he's going to want to draw on people who have experience, who have done politics like that. And who does he have to draw on? Well, the people who were in positions of power under the last two presidencies, Obama and, and Bill Clinton, both of whom were pretty center left. People, Uh, despite some of the rhetoric against both of them emanating from the further precincts of the right, uh, they were not all that far away from the center line. And the people who worked for them uh, are pretty much the same. So the only way Biden will be able to kind of throw a few bones to the left will probably be by appointing people who have not had nearly as much experience in the upper reaches of the executive branch. So um, there's that dimension to, I think, uh, the the incoming administration's decision-making as well. They're sort of locked in to n- the normalcy of the way this usually works. And you saw it. I mean, when Reagan was in and uh, the first Bush administration, that was 12 years of experienced conservatives. And so when you got p- finally to George W. Bush. Wow. A lot of the people in the first Bush in the second Bush administration drawn people who had been in office previously. And that's the way it always works. Unless you kind of break and say the whole system is corrupt. We need to bring in the whole new people who have no experience. And I think you would have seen some of that in a Bernie Sanders administration, God forbid. Uh, you saw some of it in the Trump administration and uh, we'll see going forward. But I don't think we should be surprised that Biden is drawing on talent that uh, actually has some experience under its belt.
0: What a concept. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Bill Galston, um, I was a little surprised that when Biden named his secretary of state um, that he didn't also name his defense secretary. I thought that Michelle Flournoy was sort of had the... Um, had the, 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 had the, the skids had been greased for her, I thought, but um, he hasn't done that. Do you have any insight into what's going on at, you know, in terms of his consideration of the defense
3: post? Well, I've been monitoring, you know, the left wing critique of Michelle Flournoy, uh, and which has been uh, you know, a steady drumbeat. Mm. Uh, you know, they don't, they don't like her. Uh, in part because they see her as more of a hawk than they want in that position. They especially don't like her because they see her as part of this endless revolving door process, you know, where you you work in the defense industry, then you go to the defense department, then you go back to the defense industry, and so it spins, uh, and like many other people in the defense biz, uh, she has been around that door a couple of times. Uh, I, think, I, I think that the Biden folks were probably surprised uh, by the breadth and vehemence of opposition to her. I don't think they anticipated that. They may end up nominating her anyway, uh, but I don't think it's an accident that those two nominations weren't announced at the same time. Mm-hmm. um but getting back to some of the other pressures on on the Biden team uh it's it's one thing to have left wing criticism of the racial and ethnic composition of your appointees it's another thing when Jim Clyburn starts speaking up yeah as he did a couple of days ago and i can you know, I think it would be very surprising if Biden did not nominate an African-American to head the Department of Justice. Indeed, I'd be astounded if he didn't in these circumstances, Mm -hmm. right? If there had been more senior African-American appointments in the past week, maybe some of the pressure would have been off, but now it's on Uh, and it will only intensify if the person who now seems to have been anointed the front runner uh, at HHS, namely uh, the moderate centrist uh, governor of Rhode Island, Gina Raimondo, if she gets the nod at HHS, uh, then I think it would be political malfeasance not to look at hard at someone like Duval Patrick Uh you know, the two-term governor of Massachusetts and someone with DOJ experience to head the Department of Justice.
4: Yeah. By the way, um, I can I jump in just to say that uh, I see on Twitter as we record this that uh, uh, Raimondo will not be Biden's health and human services nominee ah so because did she turn it down or i have not read far enough to see the full story yet but uh maybe the next time i speak i'll fill you in Uh, (laughs)
3: okay because she's not a she's not a great favorite on the left either uh because of the way she dealt with rhode island's pension system which many public employees did not particularly
0: like but i did (laughs) <laughs> I thought I, I think Oh she's... that
3: that that'll save her now. Yeah, I know
0: exactly, <laughs> exactly. She's she's tops on the on this podcast at least. Uh, <clears throat> and also my my friend Mike Murphy loves her. He he never misses an opportunity to plug her. Uh <clears throat> but in any case, um uh Bill Crystal in light of what um Bill Galston has talked about with these pressures on Biden. You know, there there was a tradition before Trump that um that presidents would have one cabinet member of the other party. And uh and I'm wondering do you think that Biden will go with that tradition and if so who would you think he might select and for what?
1: yeah just to save damon from uh, for later the uh, from having to speak later later the yeah it looks like romando she says she took herself out of the running uh she she's letting it be thought that she was a finalist i don't think she's saying she was offered it that would be inappropriate presumably and maybe she knew she was going to get was not going to get it and took herself out before not getting it and maybe she thought she could get it and didn't want it or thought there would be too much the biden people asked her to take herself out because there was a uh, left-wing opposition to her she's a pretty fiscally moderate not to say conservative uh person and would be not a huge fan of like massive expansions i imagine of some of these programs anyway so she seems to be out in which maybe let's the, let's Mich- see makes it better for michelle to defense jay johnson i think would be very good attorney general actually so i think you could see those two appointments pretty pretty soon maybe um hmm. the republican i've kind of assumed he would want to put a republican into one of those second tier appointments and they're issue someone like uh uh, congressman dent from uh, pennsylvania uh, is a kind of pro infrastructure kind of old fashioned you know midwestern republican of that type doesn't mind spending right. their own money on roads and- is
0: he is he still in congress or did he no, retire he left
1: in 2018 16 okay. right um so he's uh you know but well respected good relations on the hill wouldn't hurt to have him there if they We're trying to peel off 10 moderate Republicans for some House vote at some point, which, you know, might be important. So I could imagine him and there are obviously others and former governors and so forth. Uh, I I should think that I would think that Biden would want to do that. And I don't really think there'd even be much opposition among Democrats if one of 15 or however many there are these days cabinet agencies goes to a a Republican who supported Biden. I mean, it would be I don't think it'll be a Republican who supported Trump.
0: So one one last note on the whole cabinet thing. Um, uh, John Kerry, former Secretary of State, was given sort of a, a, a position without portfolio as a climate advisor. Um, does anybody agree with me that when you take a post that doesn't have an inbox, uh, you, you really aren't going to have very much power? Anybody want to comment on
3: that? Yeah, I disagree with you. Okay. Uh- he doesn't have a position without a portfolio. He has a portfolio without a position, uh, and uh, because because I think that he will in fact be the point man on the climate agenda for the Biden administration, mm-hmm. uh, and that could be that could be extremely powerful to have a point man, someone uh, someone in the White House you know, who will be talking with the president and the vice president on a daily basis. Uh, uh, Kerry- sorry,
0: to, sorry to get picky about this, but is he literally going to have an office in the White House? This is important.
3: Well, that would send an important signal, but I'd be surprised if he didn't. Okay. Uh, and, uh, you, know, I, you know, a guy I worked for for a couple of years during his presidential wall- campaign, Walter Mondale, who had about the driest sense of humor uh, I've ever encountered, uh, you know, referred to the old executive office building as Baltimore. Uh, and, uh, <laughs> well, that's uh, that's exactly you know the, the the West Wing is
0: tiny. It is really really small. Some of us have had offices it, there, yeah. and yeah. Uh, and and it and you know the saying goes, "Propinquity is power." Um, and there are very right. few places uh, that are uh, where you can where you can park yourself in that tiny little suite of offices. But um, Bill Crystal, did you want to get in on this?
1: On the Kerry uh, situation, I, I, I'm struck on this. Uh, I don't want to speak to anyone else, but I'd say, Mona, maybe people like us um, maybe don't appreciate how. I am mean, I'm a moderate climate and I'm fine with doing things to, uh, you know, slow down carbon emissions and so forth. And we published a billion pieces in the Weekly Standard about conservative ways to do this with, you know, tax incentives and carbon tax and so forth rather than regulatory. And I think stuff will happen on that. But I think. People like me, I won't speak for you, underestimate how important climate is to a wing of the Democratic Party. And I'm not saying this pejoratively or anything, just analytically. It really is. I mean, for me, it's important and we should deal with it. But, you know, at the end of the day, it's slowing the growth from point one point six seven to 1.64. Maybe it's not the end of the world, but it is the end of the world for a lot of people. And as I say, without even taking a position on, on the merits of that view, it's certainly a strongly held view by an awful lot of younger people, young people on the left, people even in the center left, though, of the Democratic Party. And in that respect, I think the Kerry appointment probably meant, I think Bill Galston's right, it sort of meant more to people and the cabinet status and a former secretary of state. I think you and I looked at it maybe and thought, oh, that's kind of a nice, you know, kind of consolation prize for the former secretary of state. And he loves going to conferences in Paris, and he'll be certainly spending a lot of time with them. But does it really matter. But I think if he says, this is not adequate, we're not doing enough, there would be a lot of people you know, in the Senate and the House and at the grassroots who would say, whoa, that's a big problem for Biden. So I think he will turn out to be pretty, pretty powerful. I, I was on the, uh, one of these panel discussions and there were, you know, a spectrum of people from around the party. And I was very struck by a young person from the, the moderate left wing, but kind of Sanders, Warren wing of the Democratic Party um it's maybe not so moderate said we we're chatting talking about what would biden do first and i said i guess i just have the obvious view that he's got to deal with covid and he'll get the economy going and actually, i think if he could do those two in the first six months he would be in great shape and he probably would mm-hmm. avoid too many contentious fights you know and too many other things which i thought was a pretty kind of obvious point and this young young man said, no, no, he's pr- pledged to do climate first, and he's got to come out of the box with an extremely ambitious and broad climate agenda. And it just struck, and he's, in, you know, he wasn't, he, he, I mean, I think he spoke for more people maybe than I would have realized. And in that respect, Kerry could turn out to be a little more important than than might normally be the case with that kind of appointment.
0: Well, um, that's that's certainly possible. And I think that that way lies, um, it's fraught with, with problems. I mean, he's, he risks alienating a big part of the, uh, Uh, of the country who are very, very sensitive about, say, you know, bans on fracking and that sort of thing. Linda, did you want to? Uh,
2: No, I I was going to weigh in on the question of a Republican choice. And I mean, I do think um, that he will have to pick a Republican and it will matter uh, whom he picks. Um, it would be it will be very interesting to see he, he could obviously go with a never Trumper I mean Jeff Flake could be uh, maybe persuaded to come in I look at Larry Hogan of course he just got reelected a couple of years ago so he might not want to come in and I think he has ambitions in 2024 uh, but there are a number of others um, as well and it would it will be interesting to see what You know, what kind of person he picks. Obviously, John Kasich would seem to me to be a very obvious choice, and giving him, you know, a HUD or uh, one of the, you know, I don't think he'd go for transportation, but maybe he'd go for HUD. I don't know. Um, I I do think he has to do that. I think it's important uh, to send a message that this isn't bipartisanship in name only, that there are going to be some, some real effort to bring people in to the, the new democratic party under Joe Biden. Okay. Um, let us
0: oh and by the way, before everybody writes to me and says that I don't appreciate the importance of climate, I I do, I understand it. I'm just I, I was I, I'm not saying that we shouldn't do anything. I'm just saying that if if a huge package such as the young man that Bill Crystal was mentioning uh, were the first thing that Biden did that that would be politically uh, risky. Okay, let us turn now to, um, to the, uh, the, the crazy, to the president's conduct. He's still not accepted the outcome of the election. Um, and I just have to share with you all, if you haven't seen it, um, an article that was in Today's Politico, which is really kind of funny. Um, it, it, the, the headline is, Trump's Georgia rally sparks GOP anxiety. So, So Trump is going down to Georgia, Um, Saturday. And uh, one of the Republicans quoted said, if all he does is whine and complain and talk bad about Kemp and the Secretary of State, then the trip will be a disaster and he might as well not even come. This is a crazy time in Georgia politics, that's for sure. Well, that doesn't even begin to capture it. Um, So, uh, Damon, uh, we've had um, Sidney Powell, uh, the president's erstwhile attorney, she's no longer an official attorney for the president going down to Georgia and saying, I would encourage all Georgians to make it known that you will not vote at all until your vote is secure. And similar messages from Lynn Wood. Um, so, uh, they're geniuses, right? They're, they're suppressing their own vote.
4: Yeah. Yeah. I I tweeted last night that that this is like chess with so many dimensions that it's ripped open a black hole in the fabric of the universe. Like this is this is just total bizarre uh, situation here where you have the most rabid right wing Republicans going so far that they're in effect telling Republican voters not to participate in the election anymore, basically to cede the Senate races to Democrats, I guess to kind of prove a point. It's hard to <laughs> fathom what anyone thinks is going on here, but this is just pure crazy town right now. You had yesterday the still sitting president of the United States dropping a 46 minute Infowars style rant about the election being stolen from him on Facebook that, as of this morning, the last time I checked, had five hundred and seventy five thousand likes. Um, you know, th- this is this is uh, so far off the deep end that it's it's hard to even wrap one's mind around it, and it's it creates a very bizarre situation for an analyst like me because. Is this even politics? I mean, we've spent the first 45 minutes of this podcast talking about politics right joe Mm -hmm. biden the incoming administration who is he appointing what are his first policies going to be how's the reaction to him among other factions of his party and in the other party will he appoint members of the other party to show bipartisanship will they pass a spending bill and so forth will it, you know relief package all of that that's what we think of as normal politics what Trump is doing. It was a it,
0: nice 45 it, minutes. It was, wasn't it was,
4: it was because <laughs> now we're in this situation of you wonder like, well, well, what is that? What is it that these people are doing? The P like the, the drunk blonde woman who testified in, in Michigan yesterday about dominion machines and tampering and votes. And then, uh, you know, all the Linwood Wood nonsense down in Georgia and Trump's 46 minute video that's not – is that even politics or is it just some bizarre form of entertainment for some sub, subsection of the American electorate who, who kind of enjoys watching a three-ring circus? I mean I don't even know exactly how to describe it as, other than a kind of like weird version of right-wing uh, kind of community organizing – you know, like Trump sets himself up on a milk carton and, and starts ranting and raving and a crowd, a mob forms around him and they all start screaming. And meanwhile, the, the incoming president is off actually trying to prepare to run the country and all the serious people are doing that. But he's doing this other thing off on the side. And it, it's hard to know how to respond or to even predict, is this ever going to end? right i mean is it like when after where is is i mean i'll I'll cede the floor in a second here but one thing someone else could like reflect on you know is there really going to be a trump rally opposite the inauguration on on january 20th where donald trump announces he's running for president in four years and anoints himself the heir apparent the the leader of the party who who will be the uh you know, the the presumed nominee four years from now, can he do that? Would it work? Will Will the media even talk about Biden's speech if that uh, SHIT show is going off, uh, going on somewhere else? It's, it's, it's hard to, to fathom exactly what it means.
0: Linda, you wanted in on I this? I do idea. want
2: in on this because, you know, Mona, I, you know, we sort of laugh about it. We talk about it as crazy. I did that earlier. But it's really serious. And I think what we are watching in the Oval Office right now is the devolution of uh, Donald Trump into a bona fide madman. And one of the things that I worry about is, you know, this idea that uh, there'll be an alternative inaugural, I think, is the least of our problems. There's some sort of disturbing stuff going on at the Defense Department where they have replaced, you know, not only the acting secretary of defense, but a number of people in top positions rearranged various, uh, units, uh, to, uh, report to, you know, 30 something, uh, Trumpists, uh, in some of the offices, the special forces now is reporting to a, a 34 year old or 32 year old guy, uh, with absolutely no background to be doing this. And you, you have to wonder, I mean, you, you've got people around Trump and I believe Trump himself, who believe that this election was stolen I, I don't think that he's just doing this for show or that he's just doing it because he wants to raise money for whatever he's going to do after I think the guy is is bona fide into a paranoid uh, breakdown and if that's happening and uh, if there are enough people and they don't have to be that many around him. Uh, counseling him in this direction. Are we going to see something even worse than a counter demonstration? Are we going to see him try to do something that really is sedition? And uh, I don't put that out of the realm of possibility. I really don't. I mean, every time we think we've reached the nadir, we can't go any lower. He manages to to do that. And I did watch that, uh, that 46... Six-minute tirade. I watched Lynn Wood down in Georgia and uh, Sidney Powell, and these are really crazy people. And I, I think we're in a dangerous time. I, you know, we we used to talk a lot about invoking the Twenty-fifth Amendment. I hope there are people within uh, the Trump administration, some of the cabinet members, and Pence himself, who are watching this carefully and and who may in fact decide that, uh, they need to intervene here. This is, this is scary.
0: But Bill, e- <laughs> in order for the 25th amendment to be invoked, um, you need a cabinet of serious people, uh, who take their responsibilities seriously. Uh, we don't, we don't have, we're long past that. That's the scary truth.
3: Uh, we sure are. Uh, Look, uh, I think one of the big stories of November was how, you know, was how few of the horrible prote- projections uh, came to pass. Uh, when when you look at the various disaster scenarios that were being seriously discussed, uh, they were always possible, uh, but it turned out. That it was a remote possibility. Uh, I I don't dismiss the possibility that someone who's totally unhinged could do things that were totally irresponsible or even seditious. You know, will Donald Trump begin as Andrew Jackson and end as Aaron Burr? I mean who the heck knows but it's it's not possible it's not possible to rule that out but
0: his lawyers argued before courts that if he did shoot someone on 5th Avenue literally that he would be uh, immune from prosecution for as long as he was president his lawyers made that argument
3: I'm aware of that, but I'm sure you remember the court's response as well as I do. That was yes. not considered to be the strongest argument they could have offered, <laughs> right? It was, it was regarded more as a reductio ad, ad absurdum yeah. of the position they were taking. And I am really struck by the fact that if this is a coup in the making, uh, it's got to be the most inept coup in world history, Uh you know, uh, sort of, you know, the coup, it, 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 coup is mounted by the Peter Sellers of the mouse <laughs> that roared or something like that.
0: A great uh, movie that I recommend all of our listeners, especially our younger listeners who may not be aware of it. Check out very wonderful absolutely. classic. from When was it? 1950s?
3: Oh no, I think it was a little later. 60s, that, and maybe 60s. 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 Yeah. 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 But, uh, so at, at, at any rate, uh, you know, I think we ought, as we as we think about these terrible things, uh, we ought to try to attach probability estimates to them, as well as you know, a simple assessment of how terrible they would be if they happened. Uh, and uh, I have to, I have to say that, you know, given the overall structure of the Department of Defense, I think there are many breaking mechanisms, some of which are in the line of command officially, but others of which are more institutional. I don't mean to sound complacent in the fa- in the face of danger here, but having seen the falsification of so many dire fears, uh, I'd like to try to keep my balance, and I think the country would be well advised to keep, try to keep its balance in the in the face of this provocative behavior. We just have mm-hmm. to we have to hang in there it.
0: for, for seven more weeks or whatever it is. Yeah. Um, Bill Crystal, um, our former party though, uh, the Republican party is, um, really, uh, for the most part, a wholly owned subsidiary, uh, of Trump and the, the cult, uh, Maria Bartiromo, who used to be a serious journalist, uh, g- gave Trump his first post defeat interview where she not only didn't counter him or, or contradict his ravings, but encouraged him and said, this is terrible. We, we can't allow this to go on. And um, you have um, loony Joe DiGenova, uh you know, issuing threats against people like Christopher Krebs saying he should be taken out at dawn and shot um, uh, for, for saying that the election was not stolen. Um, you have governor Ducey and secretary of state Raffensperger are now persona non grata, because they did their jobs, they told the truth. Um, the um, I, I'm inclined to agree with our colleague uh, Charlie Sykes when he predicts that the um, you know the the Trump was robbed stab in the back uh, narrative will be the new orthodoxy for the Republican Party.
1: Yeah, I am too. I mean, obviously, things don't go in a straight line, and and so what has that. big big caveat, and things can Mm -hmm. zag. And it could be that January 20th is a big inflection point, I think, for if one wanted to be hopeful, one could say being an ex-president is awfully different from being even a lame duck president in the Oval Office. And a lot of the power starts to dissipate, a lot of the attractiveness, the appeal, A demagogue in Mar-a-Lago is different from a demagogue speaking from the White House and so forth. So I, I think there's some truth to that, and that would be kind of the hopeful side of things. But basically, You've got to say, for those of us who were involved in many, many discussions and debates and and uh, private and public on, you know, what about the future of the Republican Party, the conservative movement? I mean, the last month has been extremely uh, discouraging for those who were hopeful, and it certainly seems to be so far confirmation of the bearish case that uh, it's it's deferential to, to Trump, intimidated by Trump, and actually not repulsed by Trump. For me, that's the biggest thing. Yeah. Not yeah. there. People are sitting around in agony, feeling that I'm going to lose the election or lose something if I don't go mm-hmm. along with this. So I'm just going to have a sleepless night, but go along with it. I don't have the impression they're having sleepless nights at all. They think it's no. all, you know, either kind of harmless or maybe a little funny or maybe half true, depending on how far gone they are. But in any case, there's the, the notion that we're doing serious damage, to American democracy and government, either in the sort of short term, the way Linda was talking about, or certainly in the little bit longer term in terms of having a non-crazy, non-conspiratorial, non-demagogic, non-super divisive politics. I just think they're not concerned about it. And, and so that really, and if they're not, then it's always going to be easier to go that way. Someone will start out with the demagoguery and the next person will decide to try to one-up him. And a few people will sort of stay away from it but will they really confront it? Why? You know, I, yeah. I think that, that I've underestimated consistently, how unworried they were able to make themselves, whether they were Republican elected officials or conservative elites, about things that to me, and I think to you, Mona, and a lot of us were just appalling.
0: This this is such an important point, Bill, because um, I've noticed when I read the justifications by people on the right about why they haven't spoken up about Trump or why they take a sort of bemused attitude toward him, they they f- frequently say the same thing. They say, and Ron Johnson said this in a, well, it was, he was quoted as saying this in in the Bulwark this week by somebody who Uh, was repeating a a private conversation with him, but uh, a Republican official from uh, Wisconsin. Namely, what do they say? They say, the institutions of our country are strong, right? And, And they assume that The institutions are so strong that there's any amount of arson and destruction that you can wreak on them. And, you know, I sort of have this image of them sitting in the burning rubble of what had once been the United States of America saying, you know, and on their tombstones, it will say, our institutions are very strong. You know they are weakening them. The institutions aren't; they don't stay strong all by themselves. People make them strong. People uphold them. And the only way to keep institutions strong is to continually reassert those virtues, those values. Um, if you flout them, then you're undermining the strength of institutions. And uh, and that's the thing that I just I, I noticed over and over and over again with the Trump justifiers is that they say, oh, well, you know, there's, there's no danger because somehow we'll all, you know, the the strength of the institutions will endure. Bill Galson.
3: Yeah, I guess the only thing I'd add to that is, is political self-interest. This was a bad year for Donald Trump, but it was a great year for the Republican party. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it exceeded expectations at every level below the presidential level, right? Total democratic failure in the House of Representatives, near total democratic failure in the Senate, uh, the effort by Democrats to take back state legislatures so they could have a bigger say in the reapportionment process was a total failure. They didn't flip a single legislature. And so, and so the... I'd say the rest of the Republican Party might well reason. You know what? Our future should be Trumpism with a human face. Why should we change course? Why should we regard this as a danger to constitutional democracy when the democratic process is working out just fine for us and we can, we can go from strength to strength in the next two to four years? So the reason you're hearing this is in part uh, because this was nothing like a repudiation of Trumpism as the dominant force in the Republican Party. Au contraire.
0: That I am afraid is quite true. Okay, Linda. Uh,
2: just quickly I mean I think uh, I think Bill's right. Um, but you know Mitch McConnell wants to be the majority leader of the United States Senate and what the Trumpists are doing now in the state of Georgia is going to determine whether or not he will be the majority leader, uh, in the new Senate. And if, um, if that election goes bad, and I think it is altogether possible that it will, because so many people will be discouraged on the Republican side from actually even voting. I think you could see a, a change. I mean, the bill is absolutely right. And, you know, some of us actually weren't unhappy that, um, the Republicans uh, retain control. Uh, I'm I'm feeling rather differently about it right now, seeing what's happened since the election. And I think uh, if in fact, you know, I, I'm actually no fa- uh, no uh, fan of uh, Reverend uh, Warnock. I you know Ossoff. I know less about. Uh, but you know, if the two of them get elected, um, that's going to be the end of. Uh, majority leadership for Mitch McConnell, and he may look back uh, uh, wistfully at his opportunity to have stood up and, and been a man. I'd only,
3: uh, point, I'd only point out that Linda
2: and I are agreeing in principle
3: that the way to get a fit elected officials' attention is for them to lose elections Correct, uh, and, yeah. and we're not arguing. We're not arguing about the analysis. Right,
0: right. Okay, Linda, let's stay with you for our final segment. Uh, the, uh, the highlight or low light that you want to emphasize?
2: Well, I wanted to uh, point to something actually, picking up on something that Bill just talked about, which is reapportionment. Uh, there was an important case before the U.S. Supreme Court that was argued this week. It was on whether or not. Uh, persons in the country illegally could be part of the enumeration for the census. And of course, we saw efforts by the Trump administration uh, to uh, have a citizenship question. They hoped to be able to exclude people uh, who were not here legally, and perhaps even exclude people who were here legally. Um, It it had a very skeptical uh, audience this week, even from uh, some of the conservative uh, members of the court, including Amy Coney Uh, Barrett, who uh, talked about the text itself. Oh, my, what a refreshing thought that we might actually look at the text. Um, And so, you know, I'm, I'm looking at that. It looks like they are not going to be able to produce the actual enumeration until after Uh, Trump leaves office. That was according, at least, to an article in Politico this week. Uh, But nonetheless, uh, it's an issue that's going to matter. And if, in fact, you could exclude 11 million people, um, it would have an impact. And interestingly, it wouldn't all be the impact uh, in places like California and Texas. Uh, It would also have an impact in states and in districts where uh, Republicans... Um, have uh, hope to pick up seats. So it's going to be this is going to be an interesting thing to watch.
3: Hmm. Thanks. Bill Galston. Well, I'd like to nominate some heroes. Uh, and by and large, they are Republicans at the state and local level who defied enormous pressure and did their duty as people responsible for managing uh, the presidential election, the, the entire election, in fact, and for counting and certifying the results. Uh, the reason we're having this conversation and not a very different one is that the rot and corruption in Washington turned out not to extend uh, to people in positions of responsibility at the state and local level, you know, who did their duty, upheld the rule of law, and preserve the integrity of the 2020 election and they deserve our undying gratitude in my view.
0: amen and also all the volunteers who um man their stations at every uh, election and uh give of their their time uh to to make sure that our our elections run smoothly
3: this could have been one of the most chaotic elections in american history it turned out to be one of the smoothest. Yes. You know, despite the highest turnout in more than a century, 159 million people, it worked.
4: Yes. The way. Yes. Damon. Well, uh, I normally in this segment highlight something positive, something good I've read within the last week and recommend it to um, listeners. This time I'm more in the mood to highlight a villain of the week, and I'm going to make it <laughs> Michael Flynn. Uh, uh. I'm not, I'm not going to weigh in on the justice or injustice of, of him, his prosecution, FBI investigation, whether he was entrapped. I think there are – Powerful arguments and examples on both sides of that issue. But since he's been pardoned by our president, he has made very clear where he stands, and that is with the president, and even, if anything, to the president's right, in that this week he put his name to uh, an advertisement calling on the president to invoke limited martial law to hold a revote, basically he wants to redo the election in the hopes that Trump will win this second time, and uh, that I see as a as as one of the most flagrant betrayals of American democracy by by a major official, someone who's held important positions in the government and the military that I have ever seen in my life. So for that, I salute Michael Flynn. You are the villain of the week. Uh,
0: I I completely agree, and I would just add that uh, you know, for those keeping trap at, track at home, uh, his lawyer uh, who uh, represented him during the last couple of years is Sidney Powell, none other than the same crazy Sidney Powell we've been seeing in the last few weeks. Um, and there's one more thing to note about both of them: they are QAnon uh, uh, believers. Uh, okay, Bill Kristol
1: uh there's plenty to be worried about in america but i guess i'll just mention two things quickly that are positive positive. one has been touched on already the the election which was huge turnout in the middle of a pandemic not only went smoothly but it seems to have gone very accurately and didn't even have glitches that we had as recently as uh eight or 12 years ago actually with people waiting in lines and a kind of de facto disenfranchisement of voters it seems to be very little of that uh, it's ironic the one that trump and everyone are making the most fuss about probably literally had the least Error, the fewest errors and the least corruption or even distortion, you might say, of the popular will of, of any election in our in recent times. So, And that was done in this kind of crazy, decentralized way we do things, uh, a lot of things in this country, uh, with a huge number of citizen participants and volunteers and people paid 25 bucks to come for the day and so forth. And so uh, that's a kind of heartening from a, let's say, Tocquevillian point of view about the state of things in America. Um, And people turned out to vote despite some health risks and and so forth, or had to figure out how to vote in a new way by mail and all that. The other thing, and this is more maybe of a Hamiltonian point rather than a Tocquevillian point, if you want to get uh, fancy about it, is I'd say the courts, whatever one thinks and the ultimate effect of all of Trump's appointees and the Supreme Court being more conservative and all, in this post-election period there seems to have been and i haven't followed every single decision and who's made them but seems to have been uh, responsible behavior by judges and by judges whether they were appointed by uh, you know uh, George H W Bush or Bill Clinton or George W Bush or Barack Obama or Donald Trump so some heartening evidence of a kind of uh, certain kinds of norms holding at least in that part not a, not unimportant part of our government and, and in a way of our society, if, it's, if you think of lawyers and the bar more broadly. So I think that's been sort of underappreciated in a sense.
0: Yes, there was a, I second that too. Um, there was a, a particularly uh, vigorous uh, opinion issued in the Third Circuit by Stefanos Bibas, who's a former University of Pennsylvania law professor um, and uh, was appointed by Donald Trump. But uh, his opinion said, look, uh, the voters choose the winner in, in our system, not, not the uh, candidates. And uh, it, was a, it was a rousing bit of, uh, of, of judicial writing and, and demonstration of what you're talking about, Bill. Um, all right. Well, for mine, I would like to draw attention to a piece by uh, our colleague at The Bulwark. Amanda Carpenter had a piece this week called the GOP is a propaganda party. And um, I have to say she came up with an image that is kind of unforgettable. And as a fellow writer, my hat is off to her because when you can come up with an image like this, it's sort of the rest kind of writes itself. She found this, this, there's a parasite that lives in the sea called Simothoa exedua. Anyway, this parasite invades the mouth of a fish Eats its tongue and sort of becomes the tongue of the fish, and then the fish sort of serves the parasite rather than the other way around. And this is the image that she used for the right-wing media ecosphere that that has taken over the Republican Party. You know, she says, "Look, uh, it's it's the people like Rush Limbaugh and Fox News and and those folks, Hannitys and the rest, they are running the fish. They are driving the boat, as it were, um, not the other way around. Uh, people." people she said think that uh that the people at fox news get their marching orders from the republican party and she says nope it's it's the other way around um and uh, it's a it's a very good piece again it's called the gop as a propaganda party uh and, um, we thank you all for listening. I'll just put in one final plug, um, for Bulwark plus, which is membership, uh, organization that where you can join for a small fee and, uh, enjoy our live streams and our, uh, that the Bulwark does, we're doing one on December 3rd, which is, well, this, this podcast will not, um, will not air until the 4th, but, uh, but, uh, we're doing one tonight. Uh, with David Frum and Charlie Sykes and uh, Tim Miller and me. And uh, we, do, we do these on a fairly regular basis now, uh, but they're only for Bulwark Plus uh, members. So we urge you to, um, to sign up. If you go to the Bulwark website, you can do that. And um, we look forward to talking with you again next week. Thank you all.